4: Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
5: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
2: So far this season, we've been looking at body snatching from the point of view of the snatcher. But we're going to change that up a little bit. Scottish surgeon John Hunter was the patron saint of the body snatchers. What do you have to do to earn that title? Well, let's find out. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarcki.
5: And I'm Holly Fry. He described the role of inflammation in the healing process. He established circulation of the placenta. He demonstrated circulation of the lymphatic system. He set up the foundations for performing bypass surgeries he revolutionized the practice of dentistry. He did a whole lot more, but here is why we're talking about today's subject. He was involved in the dissection of thousands of bodies. Yes, thousands. And that is how you become the patron saint of body snatchers.
2: John Hunter was born on February 13th, 1728 to Agnes and John Hunter, He was the youngest of 10 children and grew up in a farming family in Long Calderwood in East Kilbride, Scotland. Pretty much everything we know about John can be summed up this way. He was a born observer. He's described as a smart and curious kid, but again and again, we read he preferred to learn with a more natural, hands-on approach to the world than from books in a classroom. That evidence-based practice, which he applied to his career as an anatomist, was ahead of his time. Today, experts theorize he may have lived with dyslexia, a learning disorder that wasn't identified until 1877 by Adolf Kosmal, a German physician and professor of medicine. Some historians disagree with that theory, though, and don't consider his works published through the Royal Society, as well as an extensive collection of his correspondence, to show any indication he had
5: trouble with language. They assert that he
2: maybe just preferred dictating his works to others.
5: Of being self-taught, John wrote, quote, I wanted to know about the clouds and the grasses, why the leaves change color in the autumn. I watched the ants, bees, birds, tadpoles, and caddisworms. I pestered people with questions about what nobody knew or cared anything about. John actually ended his formal education at the young age of 13 and didn't seem to have much focus until, that is, at the age of 20, when he decided to join his older brother William, a prominent anatomist and surgeon, in London. William had just opened his first anatomy school in Covent Garden. Ten years older than John, William had received his medical degree from the University of Glasgow before moving to London to train as a surgeon. His practice and anatomical studies were almost entirely devoted to obstetrics. He had lofty aspirations, and he was successful. William went on to be named Physician Extraordinary to Queen Charlotte and supervised the births of her 15 children. He's credited with establishing obstetrics as an accepted branch of medicine, whereas it had previously been in the hands of midwives. His peers called him a man midwife. William
2: may or may not have had a wonderful bedside manner with expectant mothers. We just don't know that about him. But we do know that he was said to be a vain and ambitious man with a calculating entrepreneurial spirit. In comparison, John was considered to be brash, outspoken, and down-to-earth. He was described as having an argumentative nature.
5: I like how you can kind of see how they would be two branches of the same genetic chain.
2: Absolutely, Uh, (laughs) right? Like, kind of reminded me of my own siblings.
5: (laughs) Yes, just the same enough and yet just different enough that you could see where there might be problems. At this time in our history, anatomy and medical schools struggled to secure even one or two cadavers a year. William Hunter, though, guaranteed every student their own cadaver for hands-on dissection at his school. Following the Murder Act of 1752, the Company of Surgeons in London were legally allowed to dissect criminals who had been executed by hanging. But there were not enough hangings to accommodate the demand for cadavers, especially if you plan to have one for each student. Private anatomy schools took matters into their own hands and many paid body snatchers to supply fresh corpses taken from local graves.
2: John almost certainly led medical students from Williams Covent Garden School on nighttime trips to snatch bodies from nearby churchyards and burial grounds. And while William was uncomfortable around them, John was not shy about doing business with local body snatchers. As William's assistant-slash-student when he first arrived in London, he was the person in charge of the relationships with resurrection men. John, we know, quickly became a favorite customer because he paid good money and even better money if the corpse was somehow interesting or unusual. There were plenty of cadavers to go around at William's school.
5: Under William's guidance, John demonstrated a natural hand for dissection. He worked at William's Anatomy School before enrolling at Chelsea Hospital in 1749. From there, he went on to an apprenticeship in surgery at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. John also studied under surgeons William Cheseldon, considered to be the most eminent English surgeon of the first half of the 18th century, and Percival Pott, the first surgeon to demonstrate that a cancer may be caused by an environmental carcinogen. Unlike the required undergraduate work, medical school, and residency that you would expect today, John never completed studies at any university, and he never attempted to become a doctor of medicine. Though William had years of schooling, John's path was not atypical during the 18th century. He treated his first patient, living patient, that is, (laughs) in 1752.
2: In the 12 years the brothers were together, John was involved in the dissections of more than 2,000 cadavers. Their relationship over those 12 years, though, became contentious. According to medical journalist, author, and historian Wendy Moore, quote, As John became more expert and outspoken, he became a threat. The brothers were both argumentative. Their work eventually led to a series of disagreements between the two, with John accusing William of receiving and accepting a disproportionate amount of credit within the scientific community for their joint work. They stopped talking to each other altogether, and in 1760, John joined the British Army.
5: We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And when we return, we will talk about John's observations as a surgeon during the Seven Years' War.
1: did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply.
5: This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to True Crime Podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable, and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions, and I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past, and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash Criminalia. That's Simply Safe dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order.
0: Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles like the made-to-be-seen very sexy push-up bra from the Very Sexy Collection in on-trend hues like black shine, green, and citron. And now in this season's must have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with a limited edition bombshell escape fragrance, a free spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
4: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry.
2: Let's talk about John's groundbreaking work on the battlefield and what life was like once he was back in London.
5: John was commissioned as an army surgeon during the Seven Years' War between Great Britain and France and served in Belle Isle and in the campaign in Portugal. During those three years in the military, he studied and developed new treatments for common medical problems, notably regarding sexually transmitted infections as well as gunshot wounds. His battlefield surgical experience led to his controversial handling of wounds, and it was based upon observing four French soldiers who healed without complication after they had been left untreated. Prior to his observation and subsequent non-surgical approach to gunshot wounds, treatment had typically been to enlarge the wound to remove the bullet, and that almost always led to infection and often led to death. His work, Treatise on the Blood, Inflammation, and Gunshot Wounds, was published shortly after his death.
2: Upon his return to England in 1763, John carved a niche for himself in the area of dentistry, in particular, tooth transplants. For John, that meant detailed study of human teeth in the cranium in general. But it also meant taking the teeth from the poor and implanting them in the mouths of the rich. He published the landmark work, The Natural History of Human Teeth, explaining their structure, use, formation, growth, and diseases, which went on to influence dentistry for the next century.
5: John refocused on his private surgical practice and lecturing. He bought a plot of land in Earl's Court on the west end of London, which he populated with all sorts of species of animals. In 1767, at the age of 39, he was named a Fellow of the Royal Society. That's like being awarded an Academy Award for your work in natural knowledge, including mathematics, engineering, science, and medical science. The next year, he was elected surgeon to St. George's Hospital. Of his lectures, which he began to advertise in 1772, he said, I do not intend to give my lectures as a regular course, but rather to explain what appear to me to be the principles of the art so as thereby to fit my pupils to act as occasion may require from comparing and reasoning on known principles.
2: John goes on and on racking up achievements. In 1776, King George III named him Surgeon Extraordinary, and in 1786, 19 years after being awarded a fellow, John also received the esteemed Copley Medal from the Royal Society, which is given for outstanding achievements in research in any branch of science.
5: In 1771, after a seven-year engagement, John married the poet and Salonniere, Anne Home. Between 1772 and 1776, the couple had four children, two of whom would survive to adulthood. In 1783, the Hunters moved into a large house at 28 Leicester Square in London, enabling John to take on resident students, hold private lectures, and to establish his collection as a teaching museum.
2: Regarding the Hunter family's new home, there's an interesting story here. Two stories, kind of. Anne and her literary and musical friends kept to the comfortable and well-appointed front of the house. The house had a secret. It's much larger than you might think. The front of the house may have been upstanding and welcoming, but the back, which was technically located at 13 Castle Street, was not so much. The two buildings backed up to each other with a sort of drawbridge connecting them. Castle Street was where you'd find dissection rooms, as well as John's collection of specimens. This was where John's surgical and scientific work took place. And the back entrance, that's where the fresh corpses were delivered, usually at night. One of John's students, a man named James Williams, described his Castle Street quarters as, quote, In point of situation, it is not the most pleasant in the world. He continued, quote, The dissecting room with half a dozen dead bodies in it is immediately above, and that in which Mr. Hunter makes preparations is the next adjoining to it, so that you may conceive it to be a little perfumed.
5: (laughs) (laughs) And the second interesting story about the Hunter's new home. Many of us know Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, about a man named Dr. Jekyll and his evil alter ego, Mr. Hyde. Even if you haven't read the book, probably seen one of the movies based on it. It's a pretty common tale. So we're not going to dive deeply into the novel or any of the movies of the story, but there is something of a side story that we came across that was, at the very least, pretty interesting to imagine. There are some folks who theorize the house described in Jekyll and Hyde, which was published almost 100 years after Hunter's death, was inspired by John's two-sided Leicester Square home. Both have the respectable side of the home, described by Stevenson as having, quote, a great air of wealth and comfort, presumably that matching where Anne and her friends would sit in the Hunter's house. And like the Hunter's house, Jekyll's house also had a secret. It connects to a laboratory facing out toward another street. It's dark, it's sinister, it's where you find Mr. Hyde, and possibly, John Hunter.
2: Quite possibly. (laughs) We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. Though he was renowned for his work with corpses, when we return, we'll talk about how John was also a well-regarded surgeon to the living.
0: And now in this season's must have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition bombshell escape fragrance, a free spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
4: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry.
6: Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X dot com.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
5: Welcome back to Criminalia. John did not just work with the dead. He also treated patients, lectured, and published volumes of material. Let's take a look at his life with the living. John was a
2: standout among his peers in medicine, and his peers either loved him or hated him. Says author Wendy Moore, quote, He was a complex character. He was friends with aristocrats, but he had no vanity. He cared not for fashion. He was outspoken and didn't care who he offended. His patients adored him, while rival surgeons sometimes despised him. He had charisma. He was open to new ideas, and his mind was very agile but he didn't always have the words to explain it.
5: He was renowned for his work with cadavers, but John was also a great surgeon to the living. That was the point of all of that dissection work. He treated Georgian London's poorest in St. George's Hospital. There, he was also known to test new surgical techniques and procedures on unknowing patients. So, a little dicey. John also privately treated the city's well-heeled and its celebrities, including prominent men such as Scottish economist Adam Smith, for instance, as well as painter Thomas Gainsborough, biographer James Boswell, and a very young Byron. He removed a cyst from the cheek of Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger. Scottish philosopher David Hume called him, quote, the greatest anatomist in Europe.
2: Ever curious, John didn't let the lack of a subject get in his way. He was known to purposely use himself in his own experiments, including one anecdote that seems to be included in so many accounts of his life. The time when he infected himself with gonorrhea on purpose. According to Moore, he, quote, thought everyone should think for themselves. Every medical treatment should be based on evidence. He was also very interested in evolution, how life was formed.
5: As a surgeon, John advised his students to be judicious in their cuts. Quote, he used caution in surgery, according to Moore, writing about him. And that continues, quote, telling students that they should not perform surgery unless they would perform it on themselves in the same situation. He instructed students on anatomy, experimental methods, and surgical techniques, but compared to his peers who taught human anatomy, John's lectures also stressed the relationship between structure and function in all living creatures. He firmly believed that surgeons should understand how the body is capable of adapting to and compensating for damage, such as due to injury or disease. In his own words, quote, I think we may set it down as an axiom that experiments should not be often repeated, which tend merely to establish a principle already known and embedded." but that the next step should be the application of that principle to useful purposes.
2: Modern historians consider John to have legitimized post-mortem examinations, or autopsies. He didn't invent the procedure. The first recorded autopsy was in 44 BCE, when Roman physician Antistius examined Julius Caesar's body after his assassination. But he did help bring it into the mainstream. His post-mortem work on the corpse of a man named Samuel Johnson, for instance, was published in detail by local newspapers. Says more, John, quote, tried to explain the need for them. From about the middle of the 18th century, it began to be realized that you could learn from a dead body. And that's when some families were starting to be persuaded that they should allow post-mortems. And John did persuade some friends, family, and respectable colleagues to donate their bodies to his post-mortem studies including the English portraitist Sir Joshua Reynolds and Swedish naturalist Daniel Solander.
5: In addition to his private practice and teaching duties, John amassed an extensive collection of specimens and housed it at 28 Leicester Square. In 1788, a correspondent to London's General Evening Post reported that, quote, Mr. John Hunter opened his very curious, extensive, and valuable museum to, quote, a considerable number of the literati. The museum included nearly 14,000 preparations of more than 500 different species of plants and animals. And as his reputation grew, so did the rare specimens in his collection, including a kangaroo given to him by English naturalist Sir Joseph Banks from James Cook's first expedition in 1768 to 1771. This was the collection you might imagine from the 30-year career of London's pioneering practitioner of anatomy and dissection. Now housed in the Hunterian Museum in London, included among the exhibits and preserved specimens are things like bladder stones and tumors, as well as what were considered curiosities, such as the skull of the two-headed boy of Bengal who died in 1787.
2: The skeleton of a man named Charles O'Brien, also known as Charles Byrne and nicknamed the Irish Giant, has been on display for hundreds of years as part of John's collection. Charles stood just shy of eight feet tall, and it was no secret John wanted his body after his death. But Charles wasn't having any of John's offers, or really, he wasn't having any offers. He requested to be buried at sea, but when he died in 1783, John got his hands on the corpse by simply outbidding everyone, or to put it more crassly, bribing the undertaker with the right amount. And according to historical records, the right amount was about 500 guineas.
5: In writing about Hunter's life, biographer Moore has said, quote, John Hunter was a remarkable man, an inspired surgeon, a brilliant anatomist, and an unparalleled naturalist. He managed to fit into one life more than most people could manage in several lifetimes. On October 16, 1793, at the age of 65, John suffered a coronary occlusion during an argument with the board of St. George's Hospital. The argument was about his desire to train two students who were unapproved for the surgical profession. He died of a heart attack. His body was brought to Leicester Square, and the following day it was dissected, according to his wishes, by his students. His epitaph
2: at Westminster Abbey describes him as, quote, a gifted interpreter of the divine power and wisdom at work in the laws of organic life. And it calls him the founder of scientific surgery. But it's 19th century English surgeon and pathologist Sir James Paget who acknowledged that John, quote, made us gentlemen. When he entered surgery, it was a trade. When he died, it had become a science. I think that's a great quote to end on with John Hunter because it really does summarize what his career as a surgeon and anatomist is. You would take the
5: 2,000-plus corpses, perhaps, on. situation. <laughs> it's a lot of bodies, John. Listen, we have to acknowledge there's some classism in play in his work where he was like, you're a little bit my guinea pig. I'm not going to tell you right. that, but you're poor. You don't know the difference. Right. You go to this
2: particular hospital. You must not have much money. and I'm going to take your teeth. <laughs> oh <my God>.
5: Right. <laughs> Someone will purchase them from me. Uncommon for the day at all, but not
2: at all. In fact, I believe we've spoken about teeth in the past in this in this season so far. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Would you like to discuss embalming fluid with me? I would very
2: much like an alcoholic embalming fluid and a non-alcoholic embalming fluid. Can you help me out?
5: Yes, I can. <laughs> okay, so this is a confluence of things. I really wanted to figure out a way to do something about dissection. Makes sense. And here is the great thing. There is a little bit of a trend at the moment that works perfectly for this which is deconstructed cocktails. And this is one of those things that might sound silly, like handing people the ingredients for their drink, but not mixed together. But there is actually a very nice function to a deconstructed cocktail because they're meant not so much for like when you're making yourself a drink. Just pour a little vodka into whatever and it's good. (laughs) And you know what you like. But these are really like drinks that are made for serving a guest. And they're popular in various boutique style pubs and whatnot. But there is a really great element to it, which is that if you're presuming to be the host, it allows your guests to regulate the strength of the drink, which is something that a lot of folks would probably appreciate. I have friends that like to drink, but they might not want the same degree of <laughs> alcohol that some of my other friends would want. And so this kind of really puts the whole thing into their hands. So The one that we're doing today is called a postmortem. It's a very simple, very stripped down kind of variation on a rum punch. It's only got three ingredients. So this is easy peasy to make. All of these ingredients are super easy to find. To make the postmortem, you need two serving vessels, right? You need a small glass. A shot glass is okay, but I would recommend a slightly larger one, like a double, because you're going to put some ice in there. And then a larger glass for the chaser which is really sort of its, its own mocktail into itself. Into that smaller glass, you will pour an ounce and a half of really like good white rum over ice. That's why a small shot glass mm-hmm. is probably going to top out if you have any ice in it. An ounce and a half on a standard shot glass, you're right at the rim if you have a little ice in there. So for safety, maybe a bigger glass. Into the larger glass, which should be chilled. I used ice. It's optional if your ingredients are cold. You're just going to throw a half to three quarters of an ounce of grenadine in there, and then four ounces of ginger beer. And you're just going to mix it. So you have already, that's your mocktail. You're done. Garnish it with something beautiful. And you it's a very like fun, tropically easy drink, right? It's a little like elevated Shirley Temple situation. <laughs> but that's it, because then you're going to serve these together. So your guest can either alternate sips of the spirit and the chaser, They can do the whole Mm -hmm. spirit as a shot if they want and then just have the chaser as kind of its own drink afterward. Or it's perfectly fine to just dump the shot in. It's the drinker's choice, but that way you have afforded your guest the way that they can take care of themselves and regulate how much they want. One piece that I read had this great suggestion, which I really love that if you're doing deconstructed cocktails at like a a dinner party or even a cocktail party, you can make an entire pitcher of your chaser beverage so that people can just be refilling as they want. Because some people might literally want a tiny sip of rum and then four ounces of actual beverage. And that's fine. And by the time they get through their rum, they will have wanted more than you originally poured them in your. Your chaser mocktail. So easy the postmortem. Way easier than actually performing a dissection, and yet all yes. of your pieces are separate. <laughs> <laughs> if you really wanted to get artsy about it, I suppose you could serve each piece in its own little container <laughs> and do it like the. You know, if you've ever been to those restaurants where you cook your own food, they're at the table. <laughs> so right, right. Like I have all my tiny little jars and all I'm ready. Yeah, to so go. We'll <laughs> throw it together, but. Um, I like the idea of making someone a very refreshing drink and then serving them their actual alcohol on the side of it. Kind of a fun thing. Some foreign countries that you go to will do that anyway because they're not necessarily as into mixed drinks as we are in the U.S. When I have ordered, for example, a Diet Coke and vodka in various places, Ireland, France, etc., I usually get a Diet Coke and then a little and glass vodka. of vodka next like, to <laughs> it, which is actually pretty great I, I, you, yeah, you hand, you're in charge at that point. That's an easy peasy one, but also super yummy because if you haven't just had like grenadine and ginger beer together. I have not. Whoops, it's nice. It's got that little that little kick of ginger beer. I like a really nice high quality ginger beer so it does have that bite. And the grenadine just adds that little like fruity to it and it's a nice little... That's just a great thing to sip in the afternoon.
2: That's what I was thinking. I was like, that actually, those two things right together.
5: Like (laughs) I said, it's like a very elevated Shirley Temple. Super yummy. Deconstructed cocktails are really fun to play around with because you can really focus on making a fabulous mixed mocktail without having to worry about how the alcohol is going to impact things necessarily. Right, And then just find your really clean vodka, rum, tequila, if that's your jam, to put on the side. And you have... Well, I know Maria's shaking her head. She's like, tequila is not my job. Not a tequila gal. I'll <laughs> drink it on occasion. Right. But, um, it's not going to be
2: the first or second or third one that I pick, but, no,
5: but we're still, right. we're friends. Uh, <laughs>
2: tequila and I are friends. We're
5: just not besties. Yeah, we made up after <laughs> a long period of time. We made up, but it's not going to be the first person nope. invited to the party. Nope. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that is the post in honor of John Hunter and his work in dissection. We hope you have enjoyed This story of pretty important anatomy history, and we will be right back next week with more grave (laughs) diggings. Some possibly grisly and hopefully delightful stories right here on Criminalia. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
4: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.